On April 10th, 2010, shocking news came out of Poland. An aircraft carrying the president, his wife, government, high government officials, and military crashed in Western Russia. Prime Minister Putin uh, personally volunteered to oversee the crash site and to investigate the matter to see what had happened. We're familiar with airline crashes, aren't we? Uh, several here in the last month or two. And there's always the need to get to the site, to secure the site, and to do an investigation to see what has happened. I had a friend in Fort Worth. His job was that same kind of investigation in military crashes. So if there was a man, if there was someone flying an F-16 and it crashed, even if he um, parachuted out of it, they still would take the crash site, they would secure it, they would bring back all the parts of the plane, they would take it to a hangar, and they would put the parts of the plane back together as best they could to determine what was the problem. What was it? Was it, was it some type of, of faulty wing or, or fuselage or whatever the issue was? And they would do this incredible investigation for a couple of reasons. One, just out of curiosity to know what happened. But secondly, to prevent this from happening again. Airline crashes are catastrophic. Um, in contrast, the church has many times been altogether careless when it comes to theological crashes, theological disasters. We should employ the same kind of investigation, measuring the stress points and discovering the point of doctrinal disaster um, and helping prepare our people and the church so that they don't repeat the same problems. Paul, in his letter to the Colossians, has spent the first chapter declaring the superiority and the sufficiency of Christ. He has laid it out beautifully. And why does he do that? Because there were teachers within the Colossian church who were coming alongside and introducing different false teachings that would take away people's confidence and support in Christ. If we go to Colossians 1, let's just quickly fly over that. Pardon the metaphor. Notice in Colossians 1, he starts off with thanksgiving because these people have received Christ and the fruit of their life is being produced. Love, hope, faith. And he says it's producing and growing and he's excited about that. And then he has a prayer and he prays this prayer that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. He wanted them to be spiritually wise according to the scriptures so that they could hang on to Jesus and really benefit from the relationship they have with him. And then in 15 through 20, he talks about Christ being supreme over everything, that Christ is supreme over creation, that he is supreme over the church, that everything that's been created has been created by Christ. And then he talks about, in the, and he talks that Jesus is the very fullness of God. And so he is glorifying Christ, the beauty of Christ, the greatness of Christ, that Christ is God in the flesh. And then in 21, he reminds us of the situation we were in, that we were alienated from God, we were hostile in our minds, we were doing evil deeds, and yet Christ reconciled us to himself. He purchased our salvation, he's come to live inside us by his Holy Spirit, and he's in the process of transforming us into the very image of Christ himself. 
And so Paul then goes on to say, and I am a minister of this gospel, and I suffer for it, and I go through the process, but my goal is to make everyone complete in Christ. Then we turn to chapter 2, and there are no chapter breaks in the scriptures. These are all put in later on. But we now see Paul concerned about the Colossian church. And here are the warnings he gives us in Colossians 2. He has four different warnings he gives us in Colossians 2. Colossians 2, 4, he says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. There are people there who are as, as zealous as they can be, but they have ideas and things that are going to take you away from Christ. And it's going to be subtle. It's not going to be just something real obvious. It's going to be Christ plus. It's going to be truth compared to almost truth. Very close. It's not going to be obvious. It's going to be very close to the truth. And it's going to be, it slowly pulls us away. It's kind of like the frog in the pan. We don't just crank the heat up to a hundred, you know, 220 degrees and cook the frog immediately. We do what? We gradually raise the temperature. This is the way error is. It's always Christ plus something else. In Colossians 2.8, he says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition according to the element, elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. He says, watch out for human tradition. Watch out for philosophy. That sounds wonderful. It sounds so wise and so, so exceptional. But watch that it doesn't cut out the legs of your confidence in Christ and who he is. Then he says, Colossians 2.16, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. So they were saying, listen, even though Jesus has come and fulfilled all the Old Testament ceremonial law, you still need to keep those things. And he says, do not let these people judge you for this. And do not make this your focus of your life. Christ should be the focus of your life. And trusting him to transform you should be the focus of your life. Last week we talked about legalism. And legalism is either a focus on obeying man-made commands, or even God's commands for the purpose of receiving acceptance from God. And we talked about the fact that we've already been accepted by God through Jesus Christ. And if we get tangled up in legalism and we're all focused on keeping all the rules and regulations that are man-made particularly, we're going to find ourselves losing our focus from Christ onto those things. And in the end, we will find ourselves doing a bunch of religious stuff that Christ has not commanded us to do and not for his benefit. One of the challenges for parents is this. As you think through all the areas in your life where you are have to make decisions that aren't clearly spoken of in the scriptures, be thoughtful in those things and put those things in place that you need to to help your family. But be careful of just grabbing everything that comes your way and put it into a system. Because what happens when we are so focused on man-made rules and man-made regulations, we produce a good chance of producing one of two type of responses in our children. One is they become wonderful little Pharisees. And they can judge everyone with the best of them. The second is they become so burdened by the load of requirements beyond what Christ ever asked that they just take off into the world. And since moving here, I've noticed a lot of, a lot of people who have been in our circles 
whose, whose kids have just kind of taken off. And they're out there, and they're free, and they've gone on the other side of the ditch. Now they're being licentious. But could it be that that's because we put more on them than was necessary? Jesus' accusation against the Pharisees was this. You put a load on people that you yourself don't even carry. So we want to be careful as we talk about last week. If you haven't heard last week's message, please go back and listen to that. Let's take inventory of our life and what we require, and let's see what of it is biblical, coming from the Scriptures, and what is it something we just grabbed a hold of, and let's do some house cleaning. Because Christ is what we need for purity and for sanctification. His third warning, Colossians 2.18, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions and puffed up with, without reason by his sensuous mind. So there were people coming in there and they had all kinds, of, they, had, they had talked to the angels, they had worshipped the angels, they had, um, they had these visions and they were treating their bodies harshly, they were withdrawing from culture. They were um, simply looking at the most extreme way to treat their body to become more spiritual and more accepted to God. And Paul says, watch out for this. Paul has a pastoral heart in Colossians 2. He is warning these people who he loves. He never even met these people. But he loves them and he wants them to walk in the freedom that Christ has given them. Now God has established elders over the church and parents over the household to protect those under their care from spiritual danger. If we are not vigilant in carrying out our duty, then the flock under our care is open to spiritual harm. The purpose of the elders is not just to create the worship service and, and to do counseling, we do all those things. One of our primary responsibilities is to protect the flock. And Paul says, you need to protect the flock from at least these three or four things we talked about here. Human philosophy, legalism, mysticism, which we're going to talk about today, and asceticism. Why? Because they slowly, subtly pull people away from Christ and their devotion to Christ, and they become committed to these other things. In Titus 1.9, Paul is talking to Titus about the qualifications for an elder. And notice what he says in verse 9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction to sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict. Elders are to correct false doctrine. Elders are to help keep the purity of the faith that's been passed on. And the faith in this concept is the teachings of the apostles, the teachings of Scripture. And that's a very present danger in our culture today, is false teaching. In Acts 20, verses 28, remember Paul was on the island of Miletus. He met with the Ephesian elders, and this is what he said to them. And he had been this, in this town for years. He said, pay careful attention to yourselves. He's talking to the elders now. To yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his blood. As I look out among you, I see blood-bought people. Blood-bought people with the blood of Christ. 
the charge that we have as elders is to look out for you and to protect you from doctrine that will take you away from the bridegroom, from Christ. I know that after my departure, he says, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and not only from without, but he says, and from among your own selves, people will rise up speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Paul says, I can tell you, once I, once we, once, once I leave, there will be false teachers, even from within your ranks, who will have a grand idea and they'll take off with it and they'll take disciples to follow their path. Now, it's not just the responsibility of the elders. It's the responsibility of those who are leaders of their home to be careful what their family is taught, what they watch as far as doctrine out there on the internet or on, on te television. It's amazing what passes for, for biblical teaching on TV. Unbelievable. I was watching TV one time a while back and I turned to one of the religious stations, which will be, remain unnamed, and there was a man there and he was really, he was working up a sweat and he was saying, the Lord told me this. And this is, what he, this is what he said the Lord told him. A lot of you people believe that the Jews aren't going to heaven because they don't believe in Jesus. I'm here to tell you, according to the Lord, that's not right. They're still going to make it into heaven. Now I'm really beginning to prophesy, he said, and he really got worked up. So he claimed divine revelation that there's a group of people who can come to God without coming through Jesus Christ. That's what's out there. So shepherds of your homes, guard against what is out there. And we all have to be Bereans, Acts 17.1. Paul is preaching to these Jews in, in, um, in Berea. And this is what he's, and they're listening to Paul. Paul's an apostle. But they don't just go, wow, you're an apostle. Just tell me everything I need to know. The scripture says, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. What were they doing? They listened to what Paul said. They took it in eagerly. And then what did they do? They went to the Old Testament scriptures and compared what the scriptures said with what Paul said to see if what he said was true. Each of you has a responsibility for your own soul and those around you to become Bereans. How did they become Bereans? They knew the what? Scripture. They knew the word of God to the point they could tell true teaching from what? False teaching. So our responsibility, and why is false teaching so dangerous? Well, because it again takes us away from Christ. It may lead us away from even salvation in Christ. It may lead us away from effectiveness in Christ. We may spend years off in something we have been taught that's false and be on this detour that takes us out in the wilderness. Finally, we found the truth and come back to, to the path. False teaching is dangerous. This is why Paul is worked up in Colossians chapter 2. 
What happens when those in leadership don't protect those under their care? This week, news came out of the following. Hours before the 9-11 terrorist attack, literally hours before the attack, former President Bill Clinton told an audience at a business meeting in Melbourne, Australia, about his mischance to kill Osama bin Laden, according to the audio released this week. So he's talking to these businessmen in Australia. He talks about how he had a failed attempt to kill bin Laden. This is what he said, I, I nearly got him. And I could have killed him. But I, I would have to have destroyed a little town called Kandahar in Afghanistan and killed 300 innocent women and children. And then I would have been no better than him. Now, we know the precision of our military, don't we? They can dial in on your address if they want. So he had the chance to take care of this man. And so his final statement was, and so I didn't do it. Hours after he made this speech, a hijacked Boeing 767 slammed into the North Tower of New York City. A second plane struck 18 minutes later. And then, of course, we know other planes crashed there in D.C. and in Pennsylvania. 3,000 people lost their lives. Why? Because someone who was in leadership, who had the responsibility to protect, in this case, a nation of people, for whatever reason he chose, did not protect Leadership means protection. Fathers, it means protection of your family. Elders, it means protection of the flock. It's important. So Paul's going to deal with the legalism, the mysticism, and the asceticism. Donald Whitney, in, his, in the book written, The Compromised Church, and we had Don here back here in May, he's professor of spirituality at Southern Seminary. He talks about the problem we face with mysticism. Mysticism is the belief that we can receive from God direct commands other than those prescribed by Scripture regarding our direction in life, Additionally, it is any belief in unbiblical secret knowledge obtained through means other than the revealed word of God. So a mystic is someone who's seeking to hear from God apart from the scriptures. So he recounts this. He says, I was a guest preacher for a few days at a church in West, West Coast, and the pastor took me sightseeing. Our longest stop on this warm autumn day was a bookstore, of one of the largest ones with best-selling evangelical seminaries in the country. Since we didn't have the luxury of half a day or even to browse, I headed straight to the section on spirituality and Christian living, because that's what he teaches. I was delighted to find eight entire bookcases devoted to the subject. Shelf by shelf, however, my delight evaporated into disbelief and then into discouragement. Seven of the eight bookcases were crammed with volumes dubiously connected with biblical and evangelical Christianity. These books championed things such as the pursuit of mystical experiences, um, adopted New Age meditation methods, 
blended Buddhist thought and devotion with Christianity, incorporating Native American spirituality into the church, harmonizing karma and the Bible, and to one degree or another showing sympathy with Hinduism, shamanism, paganism, and eco-spirituality. This is in a Christian bookstore. The lesson, errors in theology tend to breed errors in spirituality. And he goes, what troubled me was the presence of so many books so far from historic evangelical moorings, especially in comparison with the small percentage of titles from recognized and proven evangelical writers. Why so many Catholics, mystics, New Agers, Quakers, Hindus, Buddhists, and why so little of the likes of Bunyan or Edwards or Mueller or other Reformation evangelicals? He said since the 1970s, he's seen, he's seen a rise in this move toward mysticism in the church of Jesus Christ. Paul dials it in here in Colossians chapter 2 when he says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism, the worship of angels, and going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason because of the sensuous mind. This, this desire to have some more knowledge besides what we have in the scriptures. That's the, that's the concern. The Bible's good, but I need something more than the Bible. He lists several dangers, Whitney does. One of them, mysticism tends to overemphasize direct subjective experiences with God rather than experiences rooted in and interpreted by Scripture and reason. This is what mysticism is. It's looking for truth in other avenues besides the scriptures. Mysticism is the idea that spiritual reality is found by looking inward. The mystic disdains rational understanding and seeks truth instead through the feelings, the imagination, personal visitations, inner voices, private illumination, and other purely subjective means. Geisler says, mystical experiences are therefore self-authenticating. That is, they are not subject to any form of objective verification. So I, I believe that God has somehow moved and spoke to me to do X, and I got that not from the scriptures, but just, just there was some experience I had. There's no way to verify what that is. There's no way to verify what that is. The mystic disdains rational understanding and seeks truth instead through the feelings, the imagination, the personal visions, the inner voices. The experience convinces the mystic in such a way and to such a degree that he simply cannot doubt its value and the correctness of what he says. We've all heard the illustration of the man who came into the pastor's office and said, God's told me to divorce my wife. And the pastor pulls out the scriptures and shows him what the Bible says, you know, you're to be one flesh and you're to be married for life and till death do you part. And he quotes all these scriptures. And the man looks at him and says, but God told me. What do you do with that? There is, the scripture refutes that. But when a person becomes convinced, when a mystic becomes convinced of what God told him, there is no changing their mind. 
The practical result of all this is that it is nearly impossible to reason with anyone convinced convinced by, by, by mysticism. Such people are generally beyond the reach of reason. No matter what kind of reason you bring to bear, no matter what kind of scripture you bring to bear, the mystic, because of their experience, is convinced that what they've heard is from God and they will not be changed by it. Mysticism, MacArthur says, is therefore antithetical to discernment. There's no discernment with mysticism. It's an extreme form, he says, of reckless faith in his book, Reckless Faith. Mysticism is leaving the safe, I call it the safety net of Scripture, and launching out into who knows what. Mysticism further nullifies Scripture by pointing people away from the sure word of God as the only reliable object of faith. This is why Paul is concerned in Colossians 2. Because these people have started off well. They're walking by faith. They have hope. They have love. The fruit of God is working in their life. But there are people who are coming and saying, hey, that sounds okay, but you really haven't had the experience I have. It takes you to a whole new level of understanding of who God is. And so it literally nullifies the scriptures, which God took 1,500 years to put together. Why would God give you something that negates this? That's a question to ask ourselves. Whitney says, Scripture-induced experiences with God should be the norm in our spirituality, not the exception. And the scriptures are the standard by which all other spiritual experiences are evaluated. Remember when he took us through going through the scriptures and praying through the scriptures while he was here. The normative way that we experience God is that as we learn the word of God, the spirit of God takes the scripture and then applies it in our life. It's called illumination. It's kind of like if you have the Bible over here and there's parts of it you don't understand the scripture. Illumination is where the Spirit puts a flashlight on it. And you now, all of a sudden, that verse that you never understood, now what? Comes to life. And you see it. And you go, wow, I never saw that before. And then you apply that to your life. If we want to be led by God, the best way to be led by God is through understanding the scriptures more and more and more and then allowing the Spirit to point those out to us and direct us in his ways. The scriptures, according to Whitney, are the standard which if we have, if we have an experience in our life, an inner experience, an inner impression, then he says the Word of God is what judges that. Gary Friesen writes, and he wrote the book um, Discerning God's Will, he said impressions could be produced by any number of sources. God, Satan, an angel, a demon, human emotions such as fear and ecstasy, hormonal imbalance, insomnia, medication, or an upset stomach. I didn't say that, he did. Sinful impressions, temptations, may be exposed for what they are by the spirit-sensitized conscience. So. If it's a simple impression, we should be able to catch that, right? Because the scripture will help us catch that. There's a net there with the word of God to be able to catch that. 
But beyond, the one, but beyond that, one encounters a subjective quagmire of uncertainty for in non-moral areas, that's areas not touched by the word of God, scripture gives no guidelines for distinguishing the voice of the spirit from the voice of the self or any other potential voice. When it comes from within you, there's no way of knowing where it came from. Tremendous frustration has been experienced by sincere Christians who have earnestly but fruitlessly sought to decipher the code of the inward witness. Impressions are real. Believers experience them. But impressions are not authoritative. Impressions are impressions. Call them spiritual or attribute them to the Holy Spirit. And they are still the same impressions. MacArthur tells in his early life that he had this, this impression that somebody in his family was going to die that year. And it was very real to him. And he was sure that God had spoken to him. And he kept waiting all year long for someone to tragically die in his family. At the end of the year, no one had died. He had that feeling. It felt very real. It seemed unbelievably real. And we've all experienced that in some way, shape, or form. But it's not authoritative. It's not on par with the word of God. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Psalm 1 talks about what? Meditating on the word day and night. The word of God is central to our thinking. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scriptures God breathes, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. John 5.39, Jesus said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. He says, and it is they that bear witness about me. The scriptures are meant to point us to who? Jesus. He is our Savior. He's the one that's going to transform our lives. The scriptures were designed by that. No other book took 1,500 years to write by the hand of God. Unfortunately, sometimes because we are not well-versed in the scriptures, we are open to these type of direct experiences and we begin to look and seek for them because we feel like in some way we have missed it. Martin Lloyd-Jones, no stranger to deep experiences with God, said, let us imagine I follow the mystic way. I begin to have experiences. I think God is speaking to me. How do I know that God is speaking to me? How can I know? I am not speaking. I am not speaking to man. How can I be sure that I'm not the victim of hallucinations, since this has happened to many of the mystics? If I believe in mysticism as, as such without the Bible, how do I test my experiences? How do I prove the scriptures? How do I know I am the, not perhaps being deluded by Satan as an angel of light in order to keep me from the true and living God? I have no standard as a mystic. Very well, says someone. 
If that is your criticism of mysticism, then what is the evangelical way in order that I may come to this knowledge and fellowship with God? It is quite simple, and it is this. It always starts with the Scripture. It says that the Scriptures are the, my only authority and final standard with regard to these matters with regard to a knowledge of God. The evangelical doctrine tells me not to look into myself, but to look into the Word of God. Not to examine myself, but to look at the revelation that has been given to me. It tells me that God can only be known in his own way. The way which has been revealed in the scriptures themselves. God has made a way for us to know him. It's the word of God. It's the word of God. <clears throat> Asking John Piper the question, so where, John, do we draw the line? At what point can we objectively say that a person goes too far in seeking an experience with God? This is John's response. When he closes his Bible. Once he closes his Bible and he starts looking for God somewhere else besides the Scripture, he's gone what? Too far. We've gone over some of these before, but I want to hammer them home again because this, this philosophy of mysticism is very subtle and it's creeping into Christendom more and more and more. Arthur L. Johnson, who wrote the book Misguided Faith, says this, the Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit will lead us, but we were never told he will lead us to do, do this by some inner urge. It is interesting in this connection that when Jesus told his disciples that he would send the Holy Spirit and that the Spirit would lead them into all truth, he then said, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. What a work of the Holy Spirit. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. How did Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John come to be? Because the Holy Spirit reminded those disciples of everything Jesus said, and they put that down. I can tell you those, those fishermen were not taking notes when Jesus was talking. They were not taking notes. The Spirit of God brought all that to remembrance and to bear there. Here the leading is bringing to mind Jesus' statements. Does that happen to us? All the time. You're walking down through the mall and you see somebody and, you, and, the, and the, the Spirit reminds you that you are to be a witness for him. And you walk over to that person and you begin to engage them in a conversation. That is being led by the Spirit through the what? Through the Scriptures. Through the Word of God. J.I. Packer. The idea of a life in which the inward voice of the Spirit decides and directs everything sounds most attractive. We're drawn to that. No one likes making hard decisions, right? For it seems to exalt the Spirit's ministry and to promise the closest intimacy with God. But in practice, this quest for super-spirituality leads only to frantic bewilderment and lunacy. Yet the true way to honor the Holy Spirit as our guide is to honor the Holy Scriptures through which he guides us. The guidance which God gives to shape our lives, the instilling, that is, of the basic convictions, attitudes, ideals, and value judgments in terms of which we are to live is not a matter of inward promptings, 
apart from the word, but of the pressure on our consciences of the betrayal of God's character and the will in the word which the spirit enlightens us, our understanding and applies to us. So, so the spirit takes the word of God and impresses it upon us. This is what the work of the Spirit is. He takes his word, he impresses it upon us, and he gives us direction for our lives. And then finally, MacArthur. Scripture never commands us to tune into the inner voice. We're commanded to study and meditate on Scripture. We're instructed to cultivate wisdom and discernment. That's what Proverbs says. Proverbs says what? Get wisdom. Seek knowledge. Look for it as for precious treasure. The call is come and get wisdom. How do you get wisdom? Studying the word of God. We're told to walk wisely and make the most of our time. We're ordered to be obedient to God's commands. But we are never encouraged to listen for inner promptings. On the contrary, we're warned that our hearts are so deceitful and desperately wicked that we cannot understand them. Surely this should make us very reluctant to heed promptings and messages that arise from within ourselves. Those willing to heed inner voices and mental impressions may be listening to the lies of a deceitful heart, the fantasies of an overactive imagination, or even the voice of a demon. Once subjective criteria are cast aside, meaning the scripture, there is no way to know the difference between truth and falsehood. Those who follow subjective impressions are by definition undiscerning. Geisler says, the scriptures do not oppose feelings as a means of expressing truth, but feelings are notoriously unreliable in means of testing truth. Sometimes you'll take this message, oh, I can't have any kind of feelings or any kind of emotion. Oh, no. David is very emotional in Psalm 119 about the word of God and, and those things. There is nothing wrong with feelings. Feelings to express what? Truth. Not feelings to what? Discern truth. That is left to the scriptures. And finally, Luther chimes in. For feelings come and feelings go, and feelings are deceiving. My warrant is the word of God, not else is worth believing. Firmly rooted on the word of God. Secondly, mysticism tends to assume too much about man's natural condition. One of the mystics back in the second and third century made this comment. He spoke about this divine spark in every soul, a spark that's indistinguishable from God himself. And Matthew Cox, a Catholic commentating on Elkhart, this man, he says, here the assumption is that God is already within the soul, which equates with the Hindu concept of Brahman, the universal deity, and Atman, the eternal deity within each individual soul. So mysticism doesn't have an accurate understanding of man. The Bible says we are dead in our trespasses and sins. The Bible says the natural man cannot even discern the things of God. And we're told in Romans, in Romans 3 that we're dead and that we, are, we, are, we have no desire to even seek God. Three, according to Whitney, mysticism tends to misunderstand the purpose of the work of Jesus. The mystic is so consumed with trying to get connected to God 
that he doesn't see the need for Jesus' sacrifice. He completely bypasses that. Because he thinks he has this inner spark, he can go directly to God and get this, get this truth. And yet we're clearly taught in the scriptures that our basis for connection with God in truth is the Lord Jesus Christ. Lloyd-Jones, the danger of mysticism is to concentrate so much on the Lord's work in us that it forgets the Lord's work for us. In other words, it's so concerned about this immediate work upon the soul that it quite forgets the, pre the preliminary work that had to be done, the salvation of Christ. Why does embracing mysticism affect believers? How does it affect them? Several years ago, a man named Harold Camping predicted the return of Christ. And he had it all calculated out. And Christ was going to come on May 21st, 2011. In dialogue with Camping, this is what he said. This is how he figured it all out. This is how he got this great impression. He said, well, the number five, that equals atonement. And 10 is completeness. And 17 is heaven. Now, y'all, you who are mathematicians, make sure you're paying attention to this, okay? All right. Wolfie, get your pad out, all right? Camping patiently explained how he had reached his conclusion of May 21st, 2011. Well, he said, Christ hung on the cross April 1st, 33 AD. Um, he began. Now he goes to April, now we go to April 1st, 2011, and that's 1978 years. Camping then multiplied 1978 by 365.2422 days. The number of days in each solar year, not to be confused with the calendar year. Next, Camping noted that April 1st and May 21st encompass 51 days. So he added 51 to the sum of the previous multiplication total, and it equals 722,500. Camping realized that 5 times 10 times 17 times 5 times 10 times 17 equals 7, 722,500. That's pretty good to know his prime factors that well. Be able to pull that off. I'm impressed with that. Or to put it into words, atonement is completeness times heaven squared. Five times 10 times 15, 17 is telling you a story, Camping said. It's the story from the time that Jesus made the payment for your sins until you're completely saved. I tell you, I just about fell off my chair when I realized that. That's his testimony. This man is a Christ, was a Christian broadcaster. Listen to what MacArthur says about him. Was he sincere? He was absolutely sincere. Pretty good mathematician too. Did he get it right? No, he didn't. Muller said this, he bears all the signs of a false prophet. He's just a sweet old man with an idea here. He claims to have a secret knowledge revealed only to him by God. He claims to have found a hidden code in the Bible. That sound familiar? He rejects what he calls literalism and claims the right to a spiritual interpretation of the biblical text. He has rejected all correction from the believing church and persists in his false teachings. He has led thousands astray from the truth and has brought reproach upon the name of Christ. He refuses even to concede that his prophecy was false. He and he alone is right. Here's an equation for you. 
weak hermeneutics or weak ability to interpret the scriptures plus a flawed concept of divine revelation is going to give you dangerous doctrine. This will give you dangerous. This is why Paul is very concerned about mysticism. It produces all kinds of false teaching. And the person is very sincere. They're very devoted. And they're very believable by people. The problem is, because it's mystical, there's no way of checking for error on it. So how does embracing mysticism affect believers? First, it's going to cause us to reject the biblical canon as being closed. Saints down through the ages believe the scripture is complete. There is no more revelation from God. You see it in the Westminster Confession. You see it in the Second London Baptist Confession. Saints through the ages have believed the scripture, the canon is complete. We have everything we need for life and godliness. Second Peter chapter 1. There's nothing else that we need. Second, mysticism embraces the reality that believers have access to special revelation from God that equals or trumps the revelation of Scripture. That, friends, is frightening. That you have, God has told you something that is more important than the Word of God? That's very concerning. Claims of special revelation are dangerous. Why? Look at the Mormons. A man named Joseph Smith went off into a cave. An angel met him, and here he has, he has created an entire cult based on this. How about the man named Muhammad, who had a special mystical experience? Now we have Islam. Look at all that's going on there as a result of a person's mystical experience with an angel or some other being. Three, mysticism places subjective personal experience in a position of authority over the scriptures. It's kind of like legalism. Legalism, if we're taking a bunch of man-made rules and we're following them religiously, it ends up supplanting what? The word of God. Guess what mysticism does? As I receive these direct experiences from God, these inner promptings and all the things that are going on, I begin to see less need for this and more need for this. And I begin to turn my focus away from the word of God, which is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword, and I get myself looking over here trying to create an experience. God told me can be a semantic issue. Okay? If by God told me you are affirming that God used his spirit to illuminate his word to your heart and has guided you into truth and convicted you of sin and righteousness and judgment, then what you're talking about is biblical illumination. And we love biblical illumination. We love our direction coming from the word of God by the spirit of God. Four, Mysticism minimizes the role of Scripture in personal experience and the need for the faithful interpretation of Scripture. There's no need to worry about what the Scripture says. There's no reason to be concerned about inter proper interpretation. So why did Paul tell Timothy this in 2 Timothy 2.15? Do your best to present yourself to God as, a approved, as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. 
Why should he be concerned about being a, a faithful worker of the scriptures and be able to rightly divide God's word if in the end all I need is some kind of direct revelation from God? As you read the scriptures, there is no concept of that. The concept is we must learn this word. We must rightly divide this word. This word is all that we need for life and godliness. That is the message. And finally, mysticism cannot be repudiated on the basis of Scripture because special revelation places itself above the Scripture. This is what always happens with the Scripture, isn't it? We have in the Catholic Church the Scripture plus the, plus the magisterial rule plus the traditions of, 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 the, of the Pope or whatever. Guess which one takes subservience? The Scriptures. We go to the Watchtower Society with the... With the um, Jehovah Witnesses, they just put the watchtower alongside the scriptures. Guess which one goes down? Guess which one's superior? Well, we take the Book of Mormon and we take the scriptures. Guess what happens? It decreases. Well, we have human traditions. We have, we have some wonderful rules we've created on our, on our own. Well, which one is which? Well, the, the Pharisees said what? Our traditions are what we keep, not the word of God. Cody has spent how many messages on Psalm 119, Cody? I know you know that number. And what's the whole thing about the Word of God? Psalm 119, 97 through 99. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation friends we have a wonderful gift here and the sad part is is that a lot of us are really not prepared for false doctrine we really aren't and when it comes it's going to turn us upside down and we're not focused on this word what's the application for this message Mysticism, legalism, asceticism. All three of these take us away from Christ and his word. That's why Paul is very concerned. And that's why we need to evaluate in our own lives that our focus is completely on Christ. It makes us open to false doctrine. Mysticism opens us up to all kinds of heresy and false doctrine. There is no real need to study the scriptures if mysticism's true. And friends, the reality is we need to double down on the word of God. We need to get to know this book so much better than we know it. There are so many Christians who are entangled in all kinds of sin and false belief and we should be able to set them free, but we can't because we don't know this word. This is why God is concerned about false doctrine. Final scripture, and we close. Second. Second Peter, I want you to hear this. 
I want you to see the glory of the Word of God. 2 Peter 1, 16 through 21. This would be a great passage just to work on and meditate on this week. Peter's talking. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received glory and honor from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the um, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. He's talking about the transfiguration, right? They're up there with Jesus. The Father says, "This is my Son, whom I'm well pleased." They saw this. He is, his garments became bright as they could be. Notice what he says next on 19. And we have something more sure. The prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. What's he saying? We were on the mountain with Jesus and we watched him transformed in all of his glory and we heard the voice of the Father speaking to him. We were eyewitnesses of that. And yet, friends, in verse 19, he says, and we have something more sure. What's more sure than being on the mountain and seeing Jesus and all this? This. This. As wonderful as that experience was, on the mountain, their more sure word is a prophetic word that they need to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Paul's word to us is, this is the sure word. This is Peter's word. This is the sure word, illuminated by the Holy Spirit and able to give us everything we need for life and for godliness. May God grant us grace to study this word, to come prepared each Sunday. We, as your elders, want to equip you more and more with the truth of God's word to be able to handle false doctrine, to be able to help rescue people from sin, this is our desire and this is our heart. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we're grateful. We're grateful for your word and we're grateful for this admonition from Paul. And Father, we pray that you would grant us grace to know your word, to do the hard work of study and interpretation, to apply ourselves to the word of God that we might not be open to false teaching and false doctrine. Father, may we realize that Jesus is all we need, that his word is all we need, that the Spirit of God working through your word is all we need. Father, we pray for grace in our lives to be firmly fixed on Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.